If you were an engineer, what would you do? I'm Ollie Gyu and this is a Primary Engineer podcast. Our mission is to celebrate engineering in all its forms and what better place to find inspiration than in the minds of children. Imogen from James Allen's Girls School has designed a robot that combats the issues caused by the crown of thorns starfish, which are killing off our coral reefs. It does this by luring in the Pacific Triton to the nearest crown of thorns infested area, using the artificial centre of the crown of thorns as bait, which the Pacific Triton is attracted to since it eats the crown of thorns. I hope this helps with the loss of coral in the world. And I see from Jags has an ingenious idea that means you can power your light bulbs by doing the dishes. My idea is a pad that you put at the bottom of your sink and using piezoelectric crystals, it turns the water pressure from the tap into energy for your home. I think this idea would benefit everyone as it stops using unreliable energy resources. For many years, through our competition, we've been tapping into the creativity of children with phenomenal results. And as a testament to their ingenuity, every year, some of the winning entries are turned into working prototypes, and they never fail to impress. One of those designs is Lacey Murphy's Whale of Litter. We're going to be meeting Nicola, Cameron and Orla from Team Prototype a little bit later. And of course, I have yet another brilliant mind to introduce you to. Hi, I'm Merritt Moore and I'm the physicist and ballerina coming on today's show. But first, let's meet Jane Hunt. Jane works for LexisNexis Risk Solutions Group, a portfolio of businesses working with big data from scientific to medical to legal and analytics. Jane is a judge for the Leaders Award competition and for Primary Engineers Stat Wars competition too, but I'll tell you all about Stat Wars another day. Anyway, let's find out about some of the inventions from this year's awards that have particularly stood out to Jane. There was an AI tennis racket. It was amazing. And I would have loved to have one of my own. So if that ever does get made, please tell me because I, <laughs> I would love to own one. Um, Wait, so how does so, that work? Does it, it does the tennis for you? No, it teaches you to be a better player. So where the ball lands on your racket, the tennis racket is gathering data on how you play. So it would then be able to tell you kind of how to approach it the next time around. So there's kind of lo lots of kind of different sensitive touch points on the racket itself, and it would take in all that information and just improve your game. And uh, what, what else has caught your eye? Oh, my absolute favorite standout for me was one called Lail, L-A-I-L-L-E. It was by quite a young girl, and I just loved it. I, I do a lot of work with diversity and inclusion at work and all of our employee resource groups. Um, it fascinates me and I love learning about them. And this for me was really interesting because it was for someone who had impaired sight. So it was blind or, you know, kind of the vision wasn't so clear or whatever. And Lail is a label that you can have on your clothes, which is kind of raised like Braille. And the idea was that you can actually go to your wardrobe and in the label of the clothes, you would be able to feel you know, whether you were putting on a, a pink long sleeve top or, wow. you know, a stripy jumper or, a, you know, it was describing the clothes that you were taking out of your wardrobe in a label. And I just thought that was such a lovely thing to be able to do. But I just thought how simple and beautiful and just it was, it was quite heartwarming just thinking that someone was thinking about how to make their life easier. Um, another one was um, a teacher's watch, which I thought was very clever to stop bullying, because obviously if you're in a playground and you're being bullied, you know, and you call over the teacher, 
instantly all the bullies run away and it's not happening anymore. Do you know what I mean? They don't mm. get caught. And so this was kind of like a watch, I think, that alerted the teacher. So it kind of always knew where you were and what was happening. And the teacher could kind of see it without you actually shouting out, <laughs> teacher, over here. I thought that was quite a subtle but clever idea as well. There was another one which was um, subtitles on glasses for cinema users, oh, which yes. I thought was really clever. Because I've, I've got to that age now where, um, sadly, I need reading glasses. <laughs> and, and also, I think if I've had a really long day and I'm tired and I'm in the cinema, I don't know if it's similar for you, but um, I'll suddenly be listening to a film and um, someone talks fast and I think, oh, I've missed that bit. That's really annoying. Or they're not speaking very clearly. And so I'm... This one is kind of, you know, if you have subtitles on a glass, great. You can kind of just read it and be a bit lazy. <laughs> I quite like yeah. that one. My wife and I spend half the time watching TV going to each other. What did they say? And and the other goes, I don't know. So that would be great. <laughs> exactly. So not just for those who's, you know, hearing impaired, because obviously being able to read what they're saying is fantastic. But, you know, just a whole host of other uses. It's just a clever option, really, you know, if you needed it. I like that. All amazing ideas, all deserving of the win, but only time will tell which inventions take the top spots. Thank you so much to Jane Hunt. Now, my next guest is a woman who has seamlessly bridged the gap between science and arts in a way that some would have thought impossible. Merritt Moore is both a quantum physicist and a ballerina. She's featured in the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, she's appeared on countless media outlets, and she starred in the BBC Two show Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes? And if you've been following Merritt during lockdown, you'll have even seen her dancing with robots. I started by asking Merritt why she decided to combine ballet with physics. I just couldn't let go of either. I was told so many times I should just pick one that uh, if I wanted to be good, that I would have to be dedicated to just one. And so I tried. I've like just, I could not let go of both. And I realized that actually when I just focused on one, the output of that was actually worse than when I was doing two. And just in terms of my happiness and motivation and productivity, that I was my the best version of myself when I was pursuing two. And, and then I was just like, you know what, we'll just take it like three months at a time and if I can pursue both for the next three months, then I will do that and we will reassess at the end of those three months and do it again. And so I've been doing that now for like 33 years. And these are, are two uh, worlds which don't necessarily have an obvious connection, but you've sort of made them collide, haven't you? Yes, yes. I think I kept them separate for quite some time just because I really cared about excellence and I just worried that if I tried to bring the two together, that it would lower the quality of both. But particularly during this pandemic, I've been able to combine the two in creating these like dances with robots. These videos of you dancing with the robots is spectacular. I mean, how does it actually work? So what I had over the pandemic was it's an industrial robot. So it's meant for industry. It's meant to pick up items and move them to a certain location or the bigger ones are used to spray paint cars. Um, But I found that in particular, I was using the robots from Universal Robotics and they have got these six joints and they just, they move very elegantly. And I was sort of then exploring like, you know, 
can I dance with a robot? Robots can't get COVID. So, <laughs> and I can't dance with humans. Like, is this a possibility? And so how it works is either I'll get inspired by music or the movement of the robot, or I'll have an idea of what type of dance style. And then I sort of play around with the movement of the robot. So it's me on my own kind of like programming the sequence of the robot. And then it's a lot of tweaking, a lot of tweaking to fit the timing and to film it. It takes quite a long time. So for a 15 second video, often it would take like seven to eight hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For just 15 seconds. It's, it's crazy. And also then I'm an artist and I'm like, I want the timing of it perfectly. So you know, maybe I could have done it in a shorter amount of time, but uh, <laughs> when once invested, once invested. And that was my pandemic um, project. I didn't know where it was going to take me. And I felt really kind of spurred on and energized by the project. And I just, every day I would go to the studio and I would just, me and the robot all day. Just you and the robot. <laughs> I love it. I, I think what's really amazing uh, about the videos is that it sort of humanizes the robot in, in a way. Um, you know, I'm looking at one in particular on your Twitter that you shared where it sort of looks at you a couple of times or at, le- mm-hmm. it, it at least appears to look at you. Yeah. And it's got that very sort of Disney Pixar uh, feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, have you have you found that it's, it's sort of added a human element to these robots? Yeah, I think, you know, um, people have often asked, like, oh, do you think robots can replace humans? I don't think they can, like, replace humans. But I will say that it's, I'm very grateful for the company and the entertainment that it has provided during this pandemic. Like, I think the pandemic has been a very lonely time. And I love to work, but I think it would have been hard for me to work on my own in an empty studio until midnight every night if it was just me. But the fact that I was there, like, with a moving robot, I don't know, somehow made it less lonely, I would say, or less, um, yeah, I was able to like work longer. What I find also intriguing by doing these is like, I think it's just pushing the question of like, what does the future look like? I think that, you know, people are very attached to their phones and technology these days. And I think it just poses the question of like, are we ready? Like, you know, what are people's thoughts about this? And are there things we should be aware of or I don't know. It's just, it's all those, those philosophical questions just to put them out there and, and have us think about it. It's, it's interesting at talking about at the pandemic because uh, for a lot of people, creativity has really been the answer to their loneliness in, in the same way that it appears to have been for you. And actually you, I know, place a huge value in um, this sort of asset and, and um, the, the uh, soul strengthening that creativity can have in someone's life. Yeah. I mean, creativity is the most important thing, I think, too, for humanity, for humans. Like, right now, it's proven, like, Siri and Alexa can answer any question we want, like, within two seconds. So the whole education system of having us memorize and regurgitate facts, I think, is really silly. And that creativity is the only thing that's actually going to be our superpower um, as humans. Like, I think our ability to ask good questions and our ability to be creative and and bring things together that wouldn't, you know, that are unexpected is what's crucial for for us. And so I think education should just be focused on creativity, to be honest. Yeah. And and then there's the, I suppose, a common myth that um, if you're 
you know, interested in something like quantum physics or engineering, whatever it might be, that that isn't creative. And actually, that's, you know, couldn't be further from the truth. I think you'd probably agree. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's taught very uncreatively. So the, you know, poor people who want to pursue it have to go through like six years of very uncreative education. But once you're in the lab and once you're actually doing experiments and once you're actually like trying to discover new things, it entails so much creativity. It entails like imagination and an ability to try to rethink concepts and ideas um, and visualize them in different ways. It entails new types of problem solving and, you know, everything in between. Do you think then there's, you know, this sort of idea that you're either left brained or your right brain do you think this is a bit of a myth oh completely oh my god this is like my rant because people <laughs> will often be like how do you like swap brains like left and right brain i'm like and I, it's not like i've got a cupboard filled with different brains that i can like you know like <laughs> i'm just like i mean i wish i did like it would be really helpful but no there's just like one brain in my head i think it's just like a, a matter of strengthening both and 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 just realizing that actually every activity if you want to pursue it with excellence and into the at a high level it's most likely going to entail both sides of the brain like i think that for instance in the lab like it takes so much creativity to problem solve and think of new new ideas but also in the in the dance studio like if i didn't have that analytic side that was sort of analyzing yeah, where my weight is, you know, the pressure that I'm taking off, like my moment of inertia when I'm turning. And I don't know, the, the process of practicing would be so much longer and I wouldn't have excelled as quickly. So yeah, this whole right brain, left brain thing, really, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 sense, I sense a deeper rant uh, somewhere yes. in there. <laughs> um, but actually, you, you know, what you're talking, what you spoke about there about inertia and, um, you know, how much weight you were put, placing yeah. on yourself. A colleague of mine, a podcast colleague of mine said that ballet is really an exquisite example of the fundamental principles of physics. And so, you know, deep within that art form, is and sort of an exploration of, of the science in a way. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I, I would say, I mean, I, I don't know, but I, I, I really think that I might not have become a professional ballet dancer without my physics background. I think it took me a long time to understand how much of an influence it had on me, but I do recognize now how much of what I do in the dance studio is based on intuition from what I learned from the physics textbooks and, and from my physics lessons. And so when I'm preparing for a big jump called the Grand Jeté, I mean, I'm often seen as the weird person in the class, but I'll often quickly close my eyes and just visualize my body going through the air. And it, yeah, like I can visualize and like where my center of mass is to get the maximum jump and how I need to take off. I just do a quick, like close my eyes, visualize it. And I, I really do think it's from doing those problems so often. Or when I, when I have to do a turn or a pirouette, I can visualize, yeah, okay, what's the placement of my feet in order to get the right torque, in order, you know, and where's the placement of my arms and the center of mass for that turn. And I, I do believe in visualization. And I think that the more you know physics and the more you can then use that in your advantage to understand how your body's going to work, 
And um, I've got to say, it was uh, really sweet to see on Twitter that there was a young girl who chose to dress up as you for um, STEM-themed STEM yeah. dress-up. So I get amazing. I get lots of photos of, especially Halloween. <laughs> um, or another one was someone from uh, Costa Rica sent me like a draw drawing of a dancer and a robot and said she for her birthday party. I think her seventh-year-old birthday party. She's going to have a robot-themed and ballet-themed birthday party. <laughs> I just it makes amazing. my heart melt. So it's like when the when the, when it does get really tough, and I just remember, and I'm like, oh, okay, it's worth it. What advice then would you give a young in, young engineer or young physicist or even you know a young creative arts person in the making? What what's your top bit of advice? There's this one quote that kind of changed my life, which was like, nothing's impossible. Possible just takes time. And I think that's the big one, I would say, is that there's now, I think, so much pressure or expectation that people be brilliant right away. And if they don't show brilliance right away, that they're not supposed to do it and that they should find something else. And my advice would be like, you know, if you're passionate about it and you like it, Give yourself the time and understand the way that you learn best and understand the way that you perform best and just constantly kind of reassess and like ask the right questions to yourself in not a negative way, not being like, oh, why can't I ever do this? But being like, if I were going to be able to do this, how? What would that entail? Like how many hours a day would I have to invest in it? What would I have to overcome? Like in which situations do I perform the best? If I'm not in that situation, can I do something mentally to psych myself out and make it, right? Like, I think that it's important for people to just be, like, self-aware of what works for them. A massive thank you there to Merit Moore. Let's take a quick break now to tell you a little bit more about the If You Were An Engineer competition. Hi, Susan Skurlock here, founder and CEO of Primary Engineer. I just wanted to jump in and tell you a little bit more about what we do. Primary Engineer aims to bring engineering and creative problem solving into classrooms to shine a spotlight on engineering skills, the range of industries engineers can work in, and to get children, teachers, and parents excited about the profession. Throughout these episodes, you'll be hearing from amazing people involved in our If You Were An Engineer, What Would You Do? Leaders Award competition. It's an annual event, and we would love for you to get involved. Whether you're a school whose children are brimming with incredible ideas or you're an engineer who wants to inspire a younger generation with your passion for the profession, register over at leadersaward.com forward slash podcast. It's all about engineers, inspiring children, inspiring engineers. As ever, if this episode has inspired you to come up with your own ideas, tell us all about them on Twitter at Leaders Award. Now, before we go, I promised you'd hear from the team who were tasked with creating Lacey Murphy's Whale of Litter. They are Nicola, Cameron and Orla from the University of Strathclyde, and they decided to call the whale Blubber. We made it into like a mechanical whale with an open mouth that would like move around the ocean and um, collect plastic in its mouth and then it would have to be manually emptied. And we just wanted something that looked like a whale so it would like blend in, it wouldn't look like something that out of place in the ocean. Yeah, so in terms of the structure, there's like a one-way mouth mechanism, wasn't there? And the plastic will through the mouth and sit in the stomach, and there would almost be like a sort of net in the stomach, that when it came back to shore, 
that's how it would be emptied and then would dispose of it like appropriately. Yeah, so I think a big thing was that um, there are a lot of prototypes and mock-ups of other devices that do a similar job in trying to capture the pollution in the plastic floating around the ocean. But the kind of differentiator in this was to make it look like a whale, which is actually a bit more of a challenge than we thought. Yeah, so you have to always listen to the client, obviously. And our client was a four-year-old. Um, and her <laughs> the main thing she wanted, the, she wanted the whale to be multicoloured. And she wanted some sort of body part to collect the uh, litter. So I think initially she'd said like she wanted something on the fins or like some sort of litter picker device on the fins. But we didn't think that was very feasible after looking into that more. So we went with the mouth instead, just had to do a bit of meeting some of our requirements. I think she was thinking of like scissors in a vacuum, like a whale would be holding these things to <laughs> to cut animals free and um, hoover up the, the waste. <laughs> I think another part of like important part of the project was probably like budgeting. So obviously we're just at university, don't have a massive budget for such a thing. But um, we took a trip to IKEA. We went to B and Q. Tried to get like household items or like things you would find uh, in like a hardware shop or you could get easily online um, or things that already existed. I think we were looking at like a washing basket for the stomach. I think the skin of the whale we were going to make from Ikea bags. I think the good thing about having it being like a child's design is they don't really see any limitations, whereas the older you get and the further into education you find yourself in, you, you sort of realise there's a lot more limitations, but the child just, just didn't see that at all. But she definitely, I think, knew what she wanted. She was quite demanding. Yeah, exactly. She was quite um, driven, I guess. Sadly, the pandemic has meant the project hasn't quite been finished yet. We did do a few kind of initial tests and things, didn't we? And we were kind of putting together the subcomponents, I guess you could say, like making sure the parts that floated were balanced and stable as they were and the kind of electronics and stuff were all planned and, and working essentially. So we had all the kind of components more or less ready to go, didn't we? And the labs were cutting out the pieces from CAD and things. And all we really had to do was assemble everything together, put the IKEA bags on and, and the googly eyes and things. But yeah, hopefully... Hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to get back and put it all together and test it and hopefully the kind of engineering work that we've done in it and the tests and the analysis all, all paid off. Well, here's hoping we get to see the final version of The Whale of Litter sometime soon. Thanks to Nicola, Cameron and Orla. Thanks also to Merit, Jane, Icy and Imogen and to you for listening. I'm your host, Ollie Giu. If You Were an Engineer is a Primary Engineer production. Stay tuned for episode nine, which is out next week. And in the meantime, please like and review us on Apple Podcasts, get in touch on Twitter at Leaders Award and head over to our website, leadersaward.com to access loads of bonus and behind the scenes content. Mm-hmm.